WGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you, as always, to the Bible Line. This is an opportunity for us to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible, 66 books within it, no more, no less. And it's the book that gives us wisdom on life. And so if you have a question as it regards to your study of Scripture, or maybe a personal issue you're facing in your life or ministry that you would like to call, you can locally. Again, the number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for listeners outside of South Carolina. And if that would be of help to you, it's 877 877- W-A-G-P, our call letters, 877-W-A-G-P-980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, as many people do every week. That email address is tbl for the Bible line at net. When you call or email, you can remain anonymous, or if you're comfortable, you can go on the air live. Rick, is always great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions that have uh, risen over the last week, so let's get to them right now. A person would like to know if a Christian is backslidden on his or her commitment to Christ, is it possible for that backslidden Christian to be possessed by demons? Well, it becomes a question really fundamentally, is it ever possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon? I don't think so. Um, The scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, when we are born again, we are regenerated by the Spirit, and we become a temple of God the Holy Spirit. In the inner man, as Paul uses the terminology, God the Holy Spirit comes to inhabit our human spirit. And there's no room for a demon in the Spirit of God in the same place. But with that said, um, sometimes people will make a distinction between demon possession and demon oppression. Uh, and indeed, it's very possible for the Christian to come under attack uh, by Satan, the Bible warns us, Peter tells us that we, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. Uh, the, the word devil means accuser. Uh, he's called Satan, which means adversary. He's called the tempter. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a lion. He's a serpent. He's an angel of light. He's the God of this world. Many terms used to describe him. And so God tells us to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians six eleven that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Uh, We're to know of his schemes. The Greek word is methodia. We get our word methodology. We're to know of the methods that Satan uses. We're not to be ignorant. For our struggle, he warns, is not against flesh and blood. The real battle is not people. Now, we may think our enemy is somebody we know 
or someone that dislikes us, but that's not the case. The real battle is those who are at work behind those individuals, against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. And so we're told to take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. So Satan can attack us with his fiery darts, and God gives us uh, some defensive and offensive weapons here in Ephesians 6 as to how we can stand up against him. And sometimes, you know, the enemy of the soul will make a person, a Christian person, very, very despondent and very, very discouraged and down in the dumps. And there have been some great Christian men. I think one who comes to mind, uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, you know, started great, but lived in the doldrums of depression towards the end of his life. What caused that, whether it was physiological or whether it was spiritual battle, we could sit here and debate. You'll hear both sides of the argument. But a Christian can be oppressed in his human spirit by the evil one, and we are to be alert. But you cannot be possessed if you are saved. God saved you forever, and he made your spirit the home of God, the Holy Spirit, who uniquely inhabits that uh, place in your life. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. That's 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener is from Billings, Montana. But we're going to get to her in just a second. We always give pref- pre- precedence, preference rather to live callers. And we have one standing by now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, Pastor Brogy. I was uh, looking on the computer for catechism, and I found um, Spurgeon's Catechism, and I'm planning to do that with my children with homeschooling. But um, I wanted to know, are, do you agree with all the answers to every question, and um, is it good to memorize the scriptures that go with the questions? I was just going to go through the scriptures with them. But I wanted to know, would it be better to memorize them? Some of them they already know. Um, well, but mainly my main concern is, are all the answers um, good to all the questions, I guess? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Spurgeon obviously was a fine man, a man of God. I, I don't know that you'll find two Christian pastors who will agree on everything, on every point of doctrine. And I certainly don't agree on every point of doctrine with Spurgeon. But are we fundamentally on this, in the same camp and in the same realm of all the major doctrines of Christianity? I would say, generally speaking, most Christians are. That's what makes us evangelicals in terms of the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Christ uh, from the grave, his literal, actual return from heaven, uh, salvation by grace through faith, the infallibility of the Word of God. Yes. Yes to all of those. And so, uh, you know, 95% of most catechisms are basically in general agreement. It's that 5% of doctrine that will set people apart into a particular camp in which they're given a label. And um, so you're going to have to sort through those. But when you approach a catechism, I think they are helpful. Uh, They can be instructive, but you want, as always, for people to find their authority, not in the catechism, but in the scripture, which is obviously your heart and your desire, because you said you're going to go through the scripture with the children. And I I say that because I grew up memorizing the Baltimore Catechism, which is the uh, catechism that we used as Roman Catholics. And there would be a question, what is the sacrament of baptism? 
The sacrament of baptism is that sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul. So there's a question, and then there's a specific answer that you memorize with it. Well, you know, right off, uh, if you know your Bible, you know that that's heretical, um, the answer, and even questionable, the term sacrament. Uh, The word sacrament generally means something that instills grace in most denominations, And that's why historically evangelicals have preferred the word ordinance rather than the word sacrament. But some of the reformers like Luther and Calvin would use the term sacrament because they saw some form of provenient grace that was instilled through the sacraments, um, whereas, or through the ordinances, whereas somebody like Spurgeon, who's more Baptistic in his theology, saw it more as symbolic. But my point is, is that you always want to ultimately take them back to the scripture so that they see that's my source of authority, not a memorized answer in a catechism. So what the catechism can do, though, is it can um, bring up a lot of different realms of theology that we can teach our kids about. And so that can be extremely helpful and very, very instructive, though I would say as a general rule, most of the instruction that we will give our children will not be formalized as through a catechism, but really in the everyday events of life. That's the focus of Deuteronomy 6. When you lay down, when you rise up, when you walk in the way, we're we're to be able to take the whole realm of Scripture and relate it to life. And so what I think you will find is your kids will ask you all kinds of questions regarding theology and so forth, and you integrate your own personal study of Scripture and say, well, let's see what Spurgeon said over here about when Satan fell. Let's see what Spurgeon says over here about baptism. And you can get them to think uh, critically. By critically, I mean interacting the Scripture with a human reason to see if they match. And where they do, then you, you camp on it and you run with it. Does that help, listener? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Great question. Well, thank you very much, caller. And uh, actually, that kind of is a good intro to our another question that we had from uh, Dan from Somerville, Maine. He'd like to know, Dr. Brogy, besides the Bible, what do you read? I was wondering what, if any, periodicals, blogs, authors, etc., you might recommend. I probably should read some more blogs than I do. I read my daughter's blog, so that's always interesting to me. I we- read my wife's blog. Um, you know, but in terms of periodicals, I've subscribed to one, uh, Christian theological journal since 1976. It's called Bibliotheca Sacra. It's the oldest theological journal in continual publication in the world. Um, Dallas seminaries had it since the 1930s, but there's always a number of very interesting thought provoking articles of theology in it. It's been a conservative uh, theological journal, except for maybe about five or six years when Oberlin College had it, and it was a little questionable in there. But other than that, it's it's been a great theological journal, and it is helpful, too, in that in the back of it, it comes out quarterly, four times a year, there's a number of book reviews. And so sometimes I'll just flip to the book review section, and I'll see you know, what's uh, what's out there in terms of the realm of discussion? And usually they have pretty good guys who have read it carefully, interacted with it, given their take on whether they think it's a strong book, what its pros and cons are and so forth, and keeps me in touch with, um, you know, the latest theological trends and issues that, you know, are being discussed in the body of Christ. 
and there are many, uh, but Again, the, the primary, though, source that I use is just God's Word. I certainly interact with commentaries. If I teach a book of the Bible, I might have 15 to 20 commentaries that I will read, all the classic commentaries that may go from the time of the Reformation, sometimes even old ones from the time of like John Chrysostom or whoever. Um, the, there's so much now that's available online where you don't even have to purchase some of these. Um, you know, you have companies like Google who've gone into major theological seminaries and libraries. They've gone through all of Harvard University uh, through their divinity school and everything that was in the divinity school they've put online. Uh, So, and again, not that everything at Harvard is conservative, but there's a good representation of conservative work. So, if I, for instance, I was uh, recently looking for a commentary on Proverbs by T.T. Perone. He lived in the 1800s, and I didn't have my own personal copy. And there it was. Uh, Google had copied it from Harvard Divinity School, and I pulled it up and and uh, was able to download it into my computer. Uh, so there's a lot of works like that. But primarily, I study God's Word, and I study commentaries that relate to it. Some people will almost... Um, I don't know, self-righteously say, well, I don't read commentaries. I just study the Bible for myself, and I let God speak to me, and that's good, but can also sound very egotistical in that that kind of statement basically says, well, God can speak to me, but he can't speak to anybody else. Um, So, again, when you look at commentaries, sometimes it provokes your thoughts. It will get you to look at it a verse of Scripture, a text of Scripture in its historical context. But honestly, I don't have time to read much beyond that. I don't read many of the popular novels and even a lot of the pop Christian culture books. I I just don't have time. I I take my study and preparation of my sermons so seriously, and it takes so much time as it relates to the text. I just don't have much time to read a lot of other things. I probably should, but I I don't. That's just honestly how I would answer your question. All right. Now that question from Lisa in Billings, Montana. She heard Bill O'Reilly talking about the baptism of desire in regards to this new debate on hell. Can you comment? Well, there's um, a new debate that's really nothing new. It's just come up in a fresh way. A guy named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, and uh, the basic premise of the book is that in the end, God's love wins out over his wrath, and so he basically writes out the doctrine of eternal retribution. He's certainly not the first to do this. There are many who have in many sizes and shapes uh, have, uh, have, you know, written off the doctrine of hell, Seventh-day Adventists, say that when an unbeliever, for instance, dies, they just, well, they just stay in the grave, uh, that that's it. They just cease to exist. It's called the doctrine of annihilationism. You have some people like Clark Pinnock, who uh, t- wrote a book called Christianity on Trial. It was a, a book on Christian apologetics. And uh, interestingly, he went moderate and became very liberal in the end in his theology. But he basically taught that if someone died and faced God in hell, that they would be given a second chance. And then in the end, everybody would be ultimately 
uh, restored into the favor of God. So again, it's been packaged in many different ways. What is surprising, though, is that Rob Bell would uh, posture himself as an evangelical Christian and use a lot of the evangelical terminology. And again, we live in a day where we have primarily, unfortunately, a naive church that is not doctrinally sound and so very susceptible to error. And this is why God tells pastors, first and foremost, you're to teach sound doctrine. The word doctrine is found 45 times in the New Testament. For God to repeat himself that many times, it's pretty important. People say, well, we're not supposed to teach doctrine. Doctrine just divides us. Well, yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. It divides the saved from the lost. Uh, Doctrine is just a, a, a word that means teaching. We are to teach what God says about a subject. And doctrine is important because when you study Bible doctrines, you're really studying the person of God. You, you can't, if you're doing it faithfully, divorce Bible doctrine from who God is because Bible doctrine really gives you a picture of the person of God and what he is like as we seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, the, I, I didn't hear um, Bill O'Reilly's comment here, but I know where he's coming from because he's a Roman Catholic. The baptism of desire is a Roman Catholic doctrine that basically says that there are people who can be saved without Jesus Christ, which is something Rob Bell has taught uh, in his book, Love Wins. Uh, Roman Catholics do not totally deny the doctrine of eternal retribution, but they do teach that there's salvation outside of Christ, that if a person in his heart as best he can desires God, that God will overlook his ignorance and save him through the church. Salvation in Roman Catholicism is through the church. And so a person in ignorance, because they have a desire, though it's a a misinformed uh, desire, can be saved. And again, I, I think that's erroneous. If I believe that, I would basically stop all evangelism. Why, why go to the bother? Why go to the bother of sending missionaries, of financing missionaries, of of trying to win people to Jesus Christ? Oh, somebody might say, well, because the life of a Christian is better than the life of a non-Christian. Well, that's certainly true, but there's a whole lot more to it. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Uh, he came to rescue us from the eternal retribution of God and the baptism of desire that Roman Catholics teach really deny that in its broadest, truest sense. Again, in fairness to Catholics, they do not deny the doctrine of eternal retribution, but they do deny it in other respects and that people in their ignorance, whether it's Hindus, Muslims, and so forth can be saved. And Pope Paul, Pope John Paul, the last Pope, before Benedict wrote a book, um, trying to remember the exact name of the title, I have it in my library, but he basically affirms in there an old Catholic doctrine called the baptism of desire and uh, reaffirms the salvation of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, even though they've never believed on Christ personally. But the Bible's clear. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's what the scripture says. We must be saved by Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no salvation outside of Christ. He is our only hope. 
How do these folks uh, handle I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, they would, they would say that. Roman Catholics would say that. They would say, well, salvation is through Christ, is administered through the church. Uh, so Christ saves them through the church in their ignorance. And so a Muslim is saved in his ignorance and that he has the desire possibly to follow God. They wouldn't say all Muslims have that desire, but some Muslims, some Hindus, some Buddhists have a desire to follow God. They just don't know about God. Their their understanding of God is uh, twisted, but God looks at their desire and saves them in their ignorance. That's antithetical to what the scriptures teach. Now, the scriptures would say that light responded to brings more light, that if a man's heart is indeed desirous towards God, and by nature, of course, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. So the initiative always begins with God. The question becomes, does God initiate with all men? I do believe he does. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But not all men respond to that initiative. Those who do light responded to brings more light. The corollary is true. Light rejected brings darkness, even though they knew God, not in a saving way like John 17 teaches, but they knew God in the sense that his eternal attributes, his divine nature, his eternal power are clearly seen through the things that he has made. All men know there is a God. God's fingerprints are all over his creation. But professing to know God, God says in Romans 1, they became fools and that they rejected that light. They gave no praise, no thanks. And so God gave them over to a darkened heart. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged, Paul said, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And they served and worshiped the created thing rather than the creator who's blessed forever. So that is the the backside of it. The plus side would be someone like Cornelius who responds to the light that he has. God brings more light, brings him the gospel, and he is saved. But the scripture is crystal clear. You must believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved. So they would say, Rick, yes, John fourteen six is true. And again, the devil is so crafty. He poses himself as an angel of light, looks very, very orthodox. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the way. Uh, You just don't necessarily have to believe on him. Well, that's not what the text says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, period. No exceptions. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, John 3.36 says, the wrath of God abides on him. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2, by nature, we are children of wrath. So, uh, no, you cannot be saved in your ignorance through Christ. Um, Your ignorance will ultimately turn into uh, the truth of the gospel if you respond to the wooing work of the Spirit of God in your life. And if you don't, then it's bad news. Uh, So we're to warn men and women. That's what God's called us to do. God has to convert, but he uses us in the process of warning, of sharing the plan of salvation so that they might know how to be saved. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this person. They write, Revelation 20, verse 4. Who are these people? Where did they come from? And are they part of the first resurrection? If so, how? Let me just turn there for just a moment. He, just to pick up the flow here, um, He says in Revelation 20 and verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, who's described here as the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Just to give you the historical context, Revelation 19, the physical return of Jesus Christ from heaven to the earth takes place. It's what the prophet Zechariah predicts in Zechariah chapter 14. It's what Jesus said would happen, that he would literally physically come back. It's what the angels declared in Acts 1 as the disciples watched the Lord Jesus ascend into heaven. And they said he's going to return in the exact same way as he left. In fact, the very mountain he ascended from heaven from is the very mountain Zechariah 14 says he's going to return to. When he returns, Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are dealt with. It says in Revelation 19 and 20, and the beast was seized, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, that's his John the Baptist, who points men to the Antichrist, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So you have this unholy trinity that's at work during the time of the the great tribulation. You have the antichrist called here the beast. You have the false prophet and you have Satan. And each member of this unholy trinity mimics the holy trinity. Satan tries to usurp the place of each member of the Trinity through this unholy Trinity. And so the devil and the false prophet are cast in the lake of fire, but the devil is bound, but it's only temporary. So he laid hold of the dragon, Revelation 20, verse 2, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it up and sealed it over him. So that he should no longer so that he should deceive the nations, uh, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. He's describing here what we call tribulation saints. These are people who are saved during this final seven years of human history before Jesus returns to the earth and literally establishes the kingdom he promised in the Old Testament. The length of it is a thousand years according to the New Testament, but it's promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah will come and literally rule and reign upon the earth with a rod of iron. Uh, The prophecies that deal with that in the Old Testament have never, ever, ever been fulfilled. But they're going to be fulfilled literally, actually, just like all of the prophecies for the first coming of Christ were literally fulfilled, all the prophecies for his second coming will be literally fulfilled. 
And so he sees these individuals who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. They refuse to say, any Christ is the one whom I should worship. They refused to give allegiance to the beast. And what did it cost them? Their heads. And so the persecution during that seven-year period is just the worst the church has ever seen in all of its history. And so God uh, redeems these people uh, through this resurrection. They've been saved, but he resurrects them at the second coming of Christ, and they rule and reign with him for a thousand years. It's all part of the first resurrection program. And the first resurrection is included. The Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, who's the first to rise from the dead. He's the first fruits. Uh, and a small handful after him. And so what you find in the Feast of First Fruits in the Old Testament is literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Someone would come and they would bring a single stalk of grain for the priest to bless it. And then they would take a handful of grain and they would grind it up and they would make an offering to God. And the single stalk represented the Lord Jesus, who is the very first to rise from the dead in a resurrected body. And then a handful of saints, the Bible says in Matthew's account, were raised up after Jesus came out of the grave, a handful of saints also rose from the dead and they walked around Jerusalem before they were taken up. Also included in the first resurrection of those who are raptured, caught up before the great tribulation and these who are raised at the end of the tribulation. It's all a part of the first resurrection. Just like the second, uh, the, the first death doesn't happen all at once, but people die over the course of several thousand years, neither does the first resurrection happen all at once. It speaks not of so much the time of the resurrection, but of the kind of resurrection. It's the resurrection of the righteous. All, all right. right. We've go. got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, there's a popular book out now, and you're probably familiar with it, called Heaven is Real about a little boy who not necessarily died, but had an experience and went to heaven. Uh, I've talked to several Christians, and uh, they say it's backed up by Scripture. Now, while I do not believe that when you die, you know, you go to heaven or hell and you come back, because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or if you're not saved, to be present in hell, I'm still curious as to all these people with near-death experiences or this little boy who say that they saw themselves floating over their their bodies or they heard conversations between doctors and their parents or they knew things that they wouldn't normally uh, know. I was wondering if you could give me your opinion as to what you think could cause that. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it, it's come to the forefront just afresh last week because ABC did a two-hour special. I think uh, it was hosted by Bob Woodruff, who had that awful accident uh, when he was embedded with the troops over there. And was it Afghanistan, I think, or maybe it was Iraq? I don't remember. But, um, you know, he uh, basically, they hit an IUD in the vehicle they were running with and nearly lost his life and he described his out-of-body experience and they had two hours of it of people describing these out-of-body experiences they had and I've met Christian people who've described them and everything else listen just because someone experiences something 
is not your source of authority. Our ultimate source of authority is always the Word of God. If someone came to a community Bible church uh, next Sunday and they were in a wheelchair and they had had some congenital paralysis, some paralysis from from the time they were born and uh, had no feeling or were unable to walk from the waist down, and someone said, I am a prophet of God and I'm here to heal this person and and I, I do it in Jesus' name, and they heal this person, and this individual who'd never walked in their whole life all of a sudden walks, people might say, wow, look at that. And then if this person stood up and began to preach false doctrine, things that directly contradicted the Word of God, what would your assessment be? Would your assessment be that he's a man of God or he's a man of the evil one? Well, I hope the latter, a man of the evil one. Because Jesus warns in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse that false prophets and false Christs will come to perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. They, they, they are so convincing that they will deceive many, many people and uh, they'll be carried away um, by experience. And that's always what usually happens is people put experience over the word of God. But because the word of God is a sure and certain testimony, I can evaluate that man's experience based on the word of God. So I don't put experience over scripture. I put scripture. I put experience under scripture. It's like someone who speaks in tongues and they say, well, I've spoken in a tongue. Therefore, it must be from God. Not necessarily. The devil is a master deceiver. And, you know, what's interesting to me is most of these people have these outer body experiences. They see this great light and everything's good and everything's okay and you need to go back. And I've met these people. I've witnessed to them. And, you know, uh, how sure are you going to heaven? I'm 100%. Well, tell me why you're 100%. Well, I had this experience one time and my heart stopped and I was on the table and I saw this magnificent light and God told me everything was fine and and you get talking to these people and you discover that they don't know who Jesus is. They've never believed on him as their personal savior, but they've had this great light experience. So how do we assess these? Well, sometimes I think it's just oxygen deprivation. You know, when you are uh, deprived of oxygen, the mind can play many, many kinds of tricks. Sometimes it's um, medication that you're on. Uh, the, the One of the most horrible dreams I ever had in my life, I was 17 years of age. I had gotten my arm caught about 10 days before in a, in a lawnmower that had flipped over, a riding lawnmower, and nearly severed it off. And I was on morphine for quite some time. And at some point, I overdosed on it, and I had the most horrible dream. It took them 15 minutes to calm me down after I woke up. And drugs will sometimes do things for, for what seems to be good or for ill. Uh, listen, I think in a lot of these cases, it's just the devil. It's the devil giving people false assurance at all as well that everything's okay, when in reality, it is not. But the scripture is really clear. And so when I meet these Christians who say, well, I died and then I came back to life, or I died three times, don't say that. That's unscriptural. You don't die three times. You die once, as our caller noted. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Is that not what James says? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. There comes a point where the spirit 
of the body leaves the body and it never returns. That's when death happens. That's when true death truly happens and not before. So you don't die over and over and over again and come back. And uh, and I think there's almost a sense of pride that people take, just like uh, some of my charismatic friends who will tell me, well, I was slain in the spirit and shook on the floor. I spoke in tongues or I, I was healed in this way. And they, there's a sense of spiritual pride in the experiences that they have that feed the human ego. And people in their pride will say, well, I died and I met God and God said this. And the very book you mentioned, by the way, was mailed to thousands of pastors. It's sitting on my desk as we speak. And I skimmed through it just recently and it's bad. It's bad, 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 bad. Why? Because it puts experience above the word of God. And whenever you do that, whether it's 90 minutes in hell or somebody who goes for a vacation in heaven comes back again, it's bad. Because, listen, anything that I believe about heaven or hell has to come from the Bible. So if you give me some insight that goes beyond the Scripture or subtracts from the Scripture, then I am violating how the canon of Scripture closes. And God warns against such a violation, the last book of the Bible ever to be written, and then the last phrases of the Bible ever to be penned. God said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And so if someone comes and says, look, I went to heaven, and let me tell you what I saw, and it goes beyond what the Scripture says, then they are in violation of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. So how are we to respond as Christians? We're simply to go to the text and what God has revealed and say that not to go beyond that. So you don't need any of these experiences. And when Christians buy into this, and this book put out in a conservative evangelical press, when Christians buy into this, they are endorsing experience over the word of God. And that's precisely what is going to happen in the final days before Jesus' return. Experience will take precedence over Scripture. That's what Jesus taught them out in the um, All of It Discourse, and so we need to heed that warning. Let's go to our next caller, Rick. All right, indeed, another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Uh, Pastor, I'm, I'm trying to remember uh, Acts chapter 11 when when Peter is explaining the situation that happened with Cornelius. Yes. And I'm trying to make sense of, I, I think he said um, that he, that they received the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Jews, that they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And I always thought that, you know, that Peter was saved even back in the Gospels. I know I'm probably misunderstanding it, but I'd like some help on what he meant by by that. And also, if you could, in your reply, tell me how I can get a hold of your handout on Bibli- the bibliology teaching that you did. I ran into some King Jane Omnis. Okay, great yeah, question. Yeah. All right, let me just deal first with the latter one. Um, I did do an assessment of all the major English Bibles from the Geneva Bible to present day. 
um, in a course we taught here at Community Bible Church called Bibliology. Bibliology is the study of the Bible. There were six sections to it. Section six dealt with the English Bible. It was an assessment of the English Bible. That section alone is over 100 pages long. I go through the arguments that people have used for King James only and so forth, do an evaluation of all the major translations uh, that people are using today, whether it's ESV, NIV, 84, NIV, 2010, uh, King James, New King James, The Message. Uh, we, we we deal with the gambit of things, and you can get that by simply calling Search the Scriptures. The toll-free number is 877-STS for Search the Scriptures 7478. 877-STS-7478. And just tell them you're interested in the course on bibliology. And if you want to focus just on the translations of the English Bible, you'll want to request Section 6. Um, Acts 11, Peter comes back and he reports to the church at Jerusalem and tells what happens in Caesarea where Cornelius and his household and friends and relatives are born again. Now, please understand what took place in Acts 2 is different from what took place in Acts 10. There's some differences, but there's some clear similarities. The differences in Acts 2 is the 120 who were in the upper room were saved people. So if any of those 120 people before the Holy Spirit came had a massive heart attack and died in the upper room, they would have went to heaven because they had already received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Jesus said the Spirit of God's not going to be for, not going to be given until he's glorified, he goes to heaven, and he's going to send God the Holy Spirit to come and dwell the church. And that's why he said just before his ascension in Acts 1, don't you go anywhere trying to win people to Jesus. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. The end of Luke's gospel affirms the same truth. Wait until he comes because he is the one who's going to give you the power to be in both speech and in character, the witnesses that you need to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so in Acts 2, you find the birthday of the church where God the Holy Spirit is sent. Generally speaking, and there are some exceptions to it in the book of Acts because um, Acts is a transitional book. And so there are some exceptions in Acts, and I'm going to deal with one here in just a few weeks and some special messages I'm going to preach. But um, generally speaking, by the time you get to the epistles, it's real clear what happens. In Ephesians 1, uh, Paul makes this statement as to when God the Holy Spirit is given. Uh, Since Christ had already been glorified and since the Spirit had already been sent, Uh, beginning in Acts 2 with the 120 in the upper room. By the time Ephesians is written, Paul makes this statement. He says, in him, this is Ephesians 1.13, in him, speaking of Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Three key verbs in this verse. Listen, believed, sealed. You cannot believe something you've not yet heard. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how shall you call upon him in whom you have not heard? Paul argues and reasons in Romans 10. So you have to first listen to the message of your salvation, namely the gospel, 
which is defined in the New Testament as the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's not enough to hear it. Some people hear it. You also have to believe it. So having listened and then having believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge, as an earnest, as a down payment of our inheritance with a view towards that future final uh, finishing of our salvation when we get resurrected bodies. And so the scripture is very clear today. The moment you believe, you receive God the Holy Spirit. That in the New Testament is called the baptism of the Spirit. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle says in verse 13, for we have all been baptized by one Spirit. When Paul looks at the Corinthian church, and they're a motley crew in terms of uh, the wide span of maturity from very baby babyfied with some marks of worldliness, but marks of conversion to very mature Christians. The whole span is in that church. Without exception, we have all been baptized by one spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens today at the moment of conversion. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. So in Acts 11, he comes back and he reports to the Jerusalem church, what happened? And he says in Acts eleven fifteen, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so he is said very clearly that what happened in Acts 2 happened to them. And the church was absolutely amazed when they heard this. If God therefore gave to them the same gift that he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I should stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What was amazing to the Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem was not that a Gentile could be saved. That was taught in the Old Testament. They, as Jews, were to be a light to the Gentiles, but that a Gentile would have the same footing as a Jew. And so just as the Jews had received God, the Holy Spirit, and there was an outward manifestation to prove it, even so these Gentiles received God, the Holy Spirit, and God gave the same outward manifestation, the ability to speak in a previously unlearned real language. Um, and it showed that the Jew and the Gentile now were on the same platform. But understand, the guys in Acts 10 were not saved until Peter came and preached the gospel. And if you read Acts 11 very carefully, he will say that. He will say how he came to their house and how Cornelius believed and how he was saved along with his household. So he wasn't, been sa- he wasn't saved before until he came and uh, preached the gospel. And so he said, uh, send a Joppa and have Simon, who's called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Cornelius was not saved before, but he was responding to the light he had. God gave him more light. He brought heaven and earth together so that he could hear the gospel, sent an angel, brought him to Peter's house. Peter had a vision. God did a great work in his life, preached the gospel. Cornelius is saved. And when he's saved on that day, just as in Ephesians 1, the moment he believes, he receives the Spirit. Great question. Uh, You might want to listen to my sermon on Acts 11. I think you would find that helpful. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Okay. 
Hey, thanks for calling today. What's your question? Yeah, my question is uh, if someone uh, has a clean heart, uh, they, uh, they gave their life to the Lord and has a clean heart, and uh, but from a child they have never been circumcised, uh, or what, is, what would you say about that? You mean they've never had physical circumcision? Yeah, never had physical circumcision. Well, uh, circumcision was an Old Testament sign that God gave to the Jewish people. Um, on the eighth day, a, a baby was to be circumcised. It was the sign of a covenant that God made with the Jewish people. Obviously, it was done just to males. It was done just to Jewish people or to Gentile converts known as proselytes. Under the new covenant, the Bible is very, very clear that circumcision is not necessary. Now, many people do it today for hygiene reasons and other reasons, but uh, it's not necessary in order to make somebody a Christian or not necessary as a prerequisite to become a Christian. This, of course, is what the book of Galatians deals with. You had some false teachers who came in and said, well, before you could become a Christian, you have to become a Jew. And you first have to be circumcised before you can believe. And Paul said, look, to add any mixture of works of human effort to the Gospels to preach a different gospel. It's to make meaningless the death of Christ and to make void the grace of God. So circumcision has absolutely zero, nothing to do with salvation today. Absolutely nothing. And in the Old Testament, it didn't save either. It was a symbol, but like with many symbols, some symbols are empty. So you had Jewish people in Jesus's day who said, well, look, you know, we're, we're circumcised Jews. We're children of Abraham. And Jesus said, look, if you had the faith of Abraham, if you were children of Abraham, you would have a different kind of lifestyle. But as it is, you know, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father, the devil, John chapter eight. So it's like today, people today get baptized and they say, well, I've been, I've been baptized. Doesn't that make me Christian? No, it doesn't. Can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. On a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know. A hundred, I am absolutely positive, not a doubt in my mind. How certain are you if you died in the next 10 seconds that you'd go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? Where would you put yourself on that scale? I'm 100%. Why are you 100? Oh, because I believe that Jesus Christ was, um, died, was, um, died, was dead, buried, and re- um and uh, came back alive and ascended into heaven. That's what I thought you would say. So so what's the function of circumcision? Well, what's the function of baptism? Well, yeah, because... th- those were just symbols, only symbols. And if the symbol is carried out and there's no reality in the heart, then it's an empty symbol. And so that's what Paul argues at the end of Romans 2. What's really critical, he says, is not circumcision on the body, on the flesh, but circumcision of the human heart. And uh, that, that, that's what becomes a critical factor. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. That makes a lot of sense. I was just real critical about it because I saw when Abram made the covenant with God uh, that uh, they had to be circumcised, and I thought— Yeah, well, the Jerusalem coming. Council in Acts 15 dealt with that problem. It made okay. it crystal clear. If you read Acts 15, listen to my sermon on Acts 15 from our series in Acts. made it crystal clear that it was absolutely unnecessary for any Gentiles to be circumcised— in 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 order to be right with God in any way, shape, or form before or after conversion. What's interesting, though, is having established that principle, right after they establish it in the same chapter, Timothy is then circumcised, who's a, a half Jew, half Greek. 
Why is he circumcised? Because they would not be able to get into certain synagogues to preach the gospel. So he did it simply to be all things to all men, not in any way to be saved, but in order to have an audience with some Jewish men that he would not otherwise have in which to share Jesus Christ. But again, it has nothing to do with salvation or conversion. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Our next caller is a young man, eight years old, would like to know if Satan will have a chance to repent and be saved. Well, uh, the answer very simply is no, and I would take you again back to the book of Revelation. It says, and when the thousand years, Revelation 20 and verse 7, are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So during the thousand-year reign, Satan is literally um, restrained, and it will really show how evil man's sin nature is because there will be sin during the millennium with the children of tribulation saints. But at the end of that time, he'll be released. He'll come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, that's the Antichrist, as John calls him, and the false prophet are also. And they, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Same with lost people. People who die and go to hell when they've spent 100 billion years there, they will not have one less second to spend. It's forever. Just as Satan will be in hell forever, just as the Antichrist will be in hell forever, just as the false prophet will be in hell forever, even so, you know, lost people will be in hell forever. That's why we as Christians are given a mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, I was in a discussion Sunday night. We were talking, I was talking with a brother in the church, and You know, I told him, look, I said, I don't think it's an issue today that seed is being sown all over the place and we need to, you know, reconstruct people's worldview and the way they think about certain things before they can become Christians. That There's room for that and I understand that and there's a need for apologetics and I believe that I'm doing a series on it this fall, but listen. The problem today in America is that most Christians no longer share the plan of salvation. I dare say, and I wish I were absolutely wrong, that 99% of the people who are listening to my voice have not shared Christ, taken someone through the plan of salvation in the last month. That's the problem with America. We live in an age when the church is lukewarm, disobedient, and no longer passionate. And this brother, of course, who had just returned from a, a missions trip, uh, you know, he said, oh, there's, you know, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of all these Christians down there doing all this work, trying to help people and all well and good. But the thing that caught their eye is that nobody was sharing the plan of salvation. And what caught the eye of a lot of the Christians was that this handful of brothers were. That's the sadness of our day. And that's why America is in such a mess, because America needs Christ. They need to call upon him for salvation, but you can't call upon him in whom you've never heard of. I'm not saying just his name. Oh, the world knows of his name, but who he is and what he has come to do 
and how people need to change their mind, repent, and believe on him for salvation. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. God willing, we'll be back again very, very soon. Have a great day.